Welcome to The Reeves Tale, a medieval miscellany with Andrew Reeves, a place where I discuss things about the Middle Ages that I find interesting. And in this one, we'll be talking about the Bible. Or rather, we're going to talk about those books that didn't quite make it into the Bible, and how they still affect the way that you read the Bible today. If you're familiar with Christianity even a little bit, You'll know the story of how Lucifer had been God's chief angel who had rebelled against God, making war upon St. Michael and the loyal angels. Lucifer then became Satan, the devil, the great enemy of God and mankind, and the subject of much death metal and black metal. If you're anything like young me, you'll then go looking through a Bible to find the story, because war in heaven sounds pretty metal. And you'll think, huh, it's not in Genesis. You'll look around, and then maybe you'll find that you're told that Isaiah 14.12 is where it comes from. So let's actually read that. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn! How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low! You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly, on the heights of Zaphon. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds, I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the depths of the pit. Okay, there's that. We get a bit more in Revelation 12:7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. But that's really it. The first one's a prophecy of a king's defeat that got retrofitted into the story of the fall of Satan, and then the second was written after the story was established. But Where's the rest of the story? Or take hell. We read about fiery and ironic torments in the works of Dante in high school English. We hear stories of how the wicked hang on meat hooks in a place of fiery torture. But in the Bible itself, we get a few places where Jesus talks about hell, where the worm doesn't die and the fire isn't quenched. And we get one description of a rich man who is in torment. And then in Revelation, there is a lake of fire where the devil is thrown at the end of time. But that's it. The Apostle Paul's letters don't even mention hell. So where are the lurid stories of ironic and gruesome torments? Well, my friends, let me tell you about what we call pseudepigraphal literature. Pseudepigraphal is Greek for falsely ascribed and refers to books that claim to be by biblical figures, but are clearly not. If pseudepigraphal is a bit of a mouthful, let's refer to apocryphal literature. Apocryphal is Greek for hidden. 
By whatever term we use, this is a body of works that claim to have been written by a biblical figure, but were clearly not. And these things were kicking around all over the place. So let's talk a little bit about the Old Testament, that is, the Hebrew Bible. In the late Second Temple period of Judaism, that is, the 2nd and 1st centuries BC, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, what Christians call the Old Testament, was already established. But remember what was happening in the 2nd and 1st centuries BC. Jews in the ancient Mediterranean were living cheek by jowl with Greeks and Greek speakers. The main place we see this is Egypt. The kingdom had been ruled by its last dynasty of pharaohs, the Greek-speaking Ptolemies, since 305 BC. Its capital, Alexandria, was a major intellectual center, home of the Library of Alexandria, with which you might be familiar, and which I may discuss in a future episode. This cultural situation means that Jews were taking part in the Greek-speaking culture of the larger Mediterranean. Sometime in the Ptolemaic period, the Hebrew Bible had gotten translated into Greek. We call this translation the Septuagint. You also had a lot of Jewish religious writing in Greek. Some of these writings were edifying works like the so-called Wisdom of Solomon a work that wouldn't be out of place in comparison to, say, the book of Proverbs. And when Christianity came along, the early church adopted some of these books. Sort of. You see, the so-called fathers of the church often disagreed amongst themselves as to whether these Greek books were scripture. You'll remember how last episode I said that what to regard as Bible emerged following a rough consensus over the two and three hundreds AD? Well, that is true, but certain of these books were outliers. After all, these books had sometimes been included alongside the Greek Old Testament, so could they be scripture? But they were Greek language books without a Hebrew original, so that was a bit iffy. Eventually, in the 1500s, with the Protestant Reformation, Roman Catholics affirmed that these books were scripture, although they were what they call deuterocanonical, that is, secondary canon. Protestants rejected them as scripture outright, although they did regard them as a body of books that one could read for their edifying value. These books are interesting in their own right. We have the Book of Tobit, in which a young man is assaulted by the demon Asmodeus, but is assisted by the angel Raphael in defeating the demon. We have Bel and the Dragon, an edition found in the Greek text of Daniel, but not in its original Aramaic. It's the story first of Daniel uncovering fraud by the priests of Bel, and another episode in which the prophet defeats a dragon by making a recipe of cakes that caused it, that cause it to burst open. Now, you might note that one thing separating this deuterocanonical literature from the rest of the canon is that we have things that are only hinted at in other scriptures that get fleshed out. The Tanakh, that is what Christians call the Old Testament, doesn't really have named demons. Even the angels don't get much in the way of names. But in the text of deuterocanonical works, we start to see named figures. But I want to talk now about a text that didn't make it into either the Roman Catholic or Protestant version of the Bible.
Is this book completely unbiblical then? Well, not entirely. You see, the book I'm talking about might not have made it into the Bible as read by Roman Catholic or Protestant Christians, but it did make it into at least one Bible, that of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Remember, Ethiopia had been Christian since the 300s, and its church goes back 17 centuries. Ethiopia of the 300s had contact with the Mediterranean, the Red Sea, and Persia. And since the early Ethiopians were reading the same books that Christians of the Mediterranean were reading, this includes works that people weren't sure whether or not they should be in the Bible. This brings us to the Book of Enoch, or rather, the first Book of Enoch. This is pseudepigraphal, since it is ascribed to a biblical figure who almost certainly did not write it. You see, in chapter 5 of Genesis, we read of Enoch, who lived 365 years and then, quote, Enoch walked with God, then he was no more because God took him, end quote. And that's it, in Genesis at any rate. There was a guy named Enoch, and apparently, as later interpreters had it, he was taken bodily by God into heaven. And even that reading is a little bit of a stretch. But the authors of the book of Enoch decided that if this Enoch was a righteous man who had walked with God in the days before the great flood, this righteous man would clearly have had revelations from God. One thing about this pseudepigraphal literature is that it's often apocalyptic. That is, it portrays itself as a revelation from God to its author. Apocalypse, of course, is just Greek for pulling back the curtain, revealing something. And Enoch, that is, the book of Enoch, gives an apocalypse about the judgment to come, particularly the judgment upon the Watchers. Who are the Watchers? Well, let's go back to the Bible for a second. I quote, When the people began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that they were fair, and they took wives for themselves of all that they chose. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went in to the daughters of humans who bore children to them. They were the heroes of old, warriors of renown. The word Nephilim, by the way, is translated in the Greek and Latin versions of the Bible as giants, gigantes. And if you read a King James Bible, that's also the translation you'll see. But don't you want to know more about these sons of God and daughters of people? I'm sure you do. And so did ancient readers. So the book of Enoch fills in that gap with the story of the Watchers, which is also the story of how the angels fell from heaven. In Enoch, we are told that there were the Watchers, angels who desired the daughters of men. Enoch gives us the names of these angels and their chiefs. These angels were told took wives from humans, and gave birth to giants. But there's more. These angels, these watchers, also taught humans the art of magic. That's right. Humans had, from the very beginning, learned magic from the fallen angels. These watchers, these defiled fallen angels, had also taught mankind all the wickedness of the world. Asael taught people the arts of metallurgy to make weapons that slay people in war. He also taught women the sinful and wicked art of cosmetics by which they lead men astray. 
Shemihaza taught spells and how to cut roots and plants to work these spells. Hermani taught sorcery. And the other leaders of the Watchers taught men to read signs. Signs in the stars, in comets, and in the sun and moon. Not only do we see fallen angels teaching mankind magic and all other manner of wickedness, we also see the good angels named. Michael and Raphael had already been named in the books of Daniel and Tobit, respectively. Now we get names for Gabriel and Uriel, along with the other three who together would make up the archangels. These archangels then imprison the Watchers, casting them into a flaming abyss, while the giants are bound up in the valleys of the earth, until they shall be led into the fiery abyss at the end of all things. This, my friends, this is the metal content that you may have looked for in your English Bible and not found. You've got sorcery, giants making war with angels, and more besides. Enoch has further visions in the book, where he travels to the place of the punishment to the wicked, and then travels to the heavens. And these visions that Enoch brings back, well, these visions set the tone for much later apocalyptic literature. And this brings us to the apocryphal literature of the New Testament. I mentioned last episode that fairly early on in the church's history, you'd seen a rough consensus as to what writings made up additions to the scriptures of the Hebrew Bible. You had the Gospels, you had the letters of Paul, and then you had other letters bundled on at the end. Certain of these letters, particularly those ascribed to Peter and James, are thought by many bi biblical are thought by many biblical scholars to be pseudepigraphal themselves, although theologically conservative Christians dispute those claims. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're not even going to talk about works like the Shepherd of Hermas, works that are edifying in their own right, and that were debated before eventually churchmen decided that they didn't quite belong in the Bible. No, we're going to be talking about what can only be described as biblical fan fiction. Devout Christians read the Bible. But if you've read the Bible, you'll notice that there's not a lot about the childhood of Jesus. There's an episode in Luke where the boy Jesus astounds elders at the temple and that's it. Nothing again until his baptism at the traditional age of 30. But people started asking, well, what would life be like for a boy growing up? A boy who also had the powers of the Son of God. And what the actual biblical record lacks, people made up for an imagination. And oh man, we're in for a ride. So let's talk about the infancy Gospels. They are ascribed to James, Thomas, and Matthew, although these are pseudepigraphal ascriptions. And the Jesus in these Gospels is less the Jesus we are familiar with from our Bibles and more like, well, they're more like Anthony Fremont, the all-powerful and completely monstrous boy from the Twilight Zone episode, It's a Good Life. What does the boy Jesus get up to in these pseudo-gospels? Well, let's take an example. He gathers waters in a pool and makes clay sparrows besides these waters. Well, for example, he gathers up waters in a pool and makes clay sparrows beside these waters. Someone rebukes him for working on the Sabbath, and he brings these sparrows to life, and they fly off. 
pretty sweet, right? Well, then, a kid muddies up those waters, and so the boy Jesus cripples him with a word. Another boy bumps up against him, as boys do, and the boy Jesus strikes him dead. Joseph hears about these things and, like an ancient father, grabs him by the ear. Then the boy Jesus grows angry and warns Joseph, and I quote, You have acted most unwisely. Do not vex me. But no, don't worry. He then laughs and brings the children he killed back to life, and nobody dares trouble him. Later, we have a teacher who hits the boy Jesus. Ancient schooling usually involved beatings. And so, of course, Jesus struck him down so that everyone thought the teacher was dead. But then Jesus revives him. In fact, there's one point in the infancy Gospels where Joseph says they can't take him anywhere because he's killing everyone. And then there's the story when Jesus, Mary, and Joseph are traveling along, and they stop to rest, and out of the cave come dragons. See what I said about these things being fanfic? But of course, this is fanfic about Jesus. So Jesus tames the dragons, praising the Lord who has made the dragon. And now Jesus is being followed by docile dragons. And he will further go on to tame lions and panthers. So the boy Jesus of the infancy gospels is a kid with an army of dragons, lions, and panthers at his command. A kid who strikes his enemies dead at a whim. And that's pretty metal stuff. And this, of course, brings us to hell. Like I said earlier, the Bible has some stuff about hell, but it's not super detailed. But early Christians wanted more. Likewise, in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul tells us about how he was taken up into heaven, but can't say what he saw. And of course, Christians wanted to know what he saw. So, once again, we will get biblical fanfic to fill in those gaps that the Holy Spirit left in the Bible. Thus, we have the so-called Visio Pauli, the vision of Paul, which covers what he saw in heaven, and more importantly and luridly, what he saw in hell. We have the Apocalypse of Peter, which is, yep, more people in hell. And there's the Gospel of Nicodemus, in which three people tell the Jewish people what they had seen after being dead and then miraculously restored to life. The Gospel of Nicodemus gives us the famous story to answer the question Christians had about what Jesus had been doing between his crucifixion and resurrection. The answer, clearly, is laying a beat down on Satan. We're told that after the crucifixion, in hell there was a great rumbling herd, and a call to cast open the gates of hell. Satan refuses, and thus the iron bars and bronze gates of hell are smashed. Christ enters and casts the devil on his face, hog-tying the devil and then bringing all the righteous dead out of hell with him into heaven. Now then, this text has lots of biblical language. When the devil is warned to open the gates of hell, we hear, Open the gates and the king of glory shall come in. And that, of course, comes from Psalm 24. Psalm 107 speaks of God breaking iron bars and bronze gates. And, of course, the reason for a text like the Gospel of Nicodemus is the question of what happens after death. 
Christians believed that Jesus died so that people could have their sins forgiven and go to heaven. But what about the people who lived before Christ? Well, the New Testament says they were by the side of the Old Testament figure Abraham. But where exactly? Eventually, people decided that the righteous dead of the Old Testament were in a sealed-off portion of hell that Jesus retrieved when he descended after his crucifixion. So yes, a work like Nicodemus is fanfic, but it also fits into the human need to make stories make sense and all fit together. And indeed, even though Nicodemus was never recognized as scripture, that story became accepted as a part of the Christian story throughout most of the Middle Ages. And then there are those apocalypses. If the New Testament is coy about what is suffered in hell, aside from lines about worms and fire that's never quenched, the pseudepigrapha pull no punches. It's in these visions where the blasphemous are suspended by their tongues over fire. Women who practice infanticide have their milk come out of their breasts and then congeal and turn into snakes that bite them. Adulterous men are hung by their ankles, face down, in what polite translators often call mire. Users dwell in lakes of pus. People who hear but don't do the word of God are roasted on spits. And foot-long worms devour those who deny the bodily resurrection of Christ. So, if you've wondered where incredibly lurid punishments in hell come from, there you have it. It's from pseudepigraphal literature. If you've ever wondered where the elaborate accounts of the fall of the angels come from, it's from pseudepigraphal literature as well. Same for Christ's descent into hell and retrieval of the righteous dead. And What's funny is that none of this made it into the Bible, apart from Enoch among the Ethiopians. And yet, aside from the infancy Gospels, which were eventually put aside with no small embarrassment, much of the material having to do with visions of heaven and hell, Christ's descent into hell, that came to be understood as part of the Bible story, even if it was not in the Bible itself. The lesson here, I guess, is that we humans are natural storytellers. And if we get a story that seems to have blank spots, we'll fill those in. The fanfic writer who looks at the blank places on Tolkien's map and decides to add locations. Or the person who asks what Frodo is doing in those 17 years between Bilbo's departure and Gandalf's return to the Shire, and then writes their own fanfic to fill that in. Well, They've got their counterparts in those early Christians who asked what Jesus' childhood must have been like. I've only scratched the surface of this sort of narrative, and may come back to these sort of things in future episodes. If you'd like to support this work of mine that I'm doing in addition to my normal duties as a professor, please go over to the Patreon link and subscribe. I'm Andrew Reeves, and this has been The Reeves Tale. Thanks for listening.